0: Welcome to another episode of Dragon Road, a podcast on China's rise in the world by Tabat Lab. My name is Arif Rafiq, and I'm your host. In June of this year, the G7 announced its support for the U.S.-led Build Back Better World initiative or the B3W, the latest program aimed at competing with China's Belt and Road Initiative in addressing the trillions of dollars in estimated infrastructure needs in the developing world. The White House says that through the B3W, the G7 and other like-minded partners will coordinate in mobilizing private sector capital in four areas of focus, climate, public health, digital technology, and gender equity. The White House also claims that the B3W will collectively catalyze hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure investment for low- and middle-income countries in the coming years. Now, as we had said earlier, the B3W doesn't come out of a vacuum. In recent years, we've seen a number of initiatives emerge from the U.S. as well as other major economies to compete with the Belt and Road. At the same time, the Belt and Road is itself adapting with some observers saying that spending has plunged and Beijing now emphasizing a focus on greener and higher quality projects. So, to discuss where the BRI stands and whether the B3W can compete with it in an increasingly competitive infrastructure financing environment, we're joined by Jonathan Hildman, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., where he directs the Reconnecting Asia program. Jonathan is author of The Emperor's New Road, a book published last year on the Belt and Road, and he has a new book coming out this fall on China's Digital Silk Road. Jonathan, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, you know, the B3W is not the first initiative that's designed to compete with the BRI. In 2019, the Trump administration established the Blue Dot Network with Australia and Japan, and it also created the Development Finance Corporation, which is you know, a byproduct of the merger of OPEC with uh, another entity that was in USAID. So I'd like you to set the context for the establishment of the B3W. What is the B3W and how does it relate to these preceding initiatives? Is it something different altogether um, developed by the Biden administration, or is it meant to work in concert with these Trump-era uh, initiatives.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, the the details of this B3W effort are still really being worked out, um, but I think it does reflect a pretty important shift um, in the sort of U.S. posture and reaction to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which I think has kind of had three phases. The first phase um, was to sort of, you know, scratch our heads and ask, what was this thing Um, and to not really talk much about it. Um, I think that was also in part because the U.S. had its own positive economic vision um, and was pursuing the Trans-Pacific Partnership at one time, and so had something affirmative to talk about and wasn't spending too much time criticizing the Belt and Road. Then there was a period, the second phase I think was um, mainly criticizing what China was doing and not offering um, meaningful alternatives um, and now, thankfully, we have moved away from that phase into, I think, a much more um, promising strategic phase where we are focused on expanding the availability of higher quality infrastructure alternatives. And so you know, that, that shift began, as you indicated, um, with you know, the development of the DFC. Um, and yeah, I mean, we have a functioning U.S. export-import bank now. That's another positive development. Um, And also the creation of what's called the Blue Dot Network, which is a partnership among just a trilateral partnership, including the U.S., Australia, and Japan. And really the core idea of that effort is to come up with some kind of certification process to provide a stamp of approval, a Blue Dot stamp of approval for projects that meet a certain agreed upon uh, quality threshold. Um, And in, in providing that approval to try to mobilize money from the private sector, and, and that, that goal of mobilizing money from the private sector is really at the core of what this Build Back Better World or B3W partnership is trying to do. I mean, it recognizes that the United States and other um, G7 countries don't have the public uh, fire, financing firepower um, to do all of this, all of what needs to be done um, through through public lending and that in order to really meaningfully um, expand the availability of uh, higher quality alternatives they need to catalyze private sector financing and so the, the b3w we know based on you know, the read the sort of communique and the readout from um, the white house that it's going to have a focus on four areas um, one area is um, health and that obviously makes sense as part of the COVID nineteen response. Um, it's going to have a focus on climate, which I think is something that um, perhaps the Blue Dot Network did not initially have. Um, and it's going to have a focus on digital technology, really important. Um, and then finally, a focus on gender equity. Uh, and so I think all of those areas are um, strategically important, and I think they're areas where the U.S. Has potentially a comparative advantage, so I think all of that's encouraging. Um, but still, you know, a lot of the operational details need to be worked out.
0: Mm. And uh, the B three W, uh, you know, I noticed um, hard infrastructure is kind of missing from that list of four priorities. Uh, so do you do you do you know whether you plan on uh, mobilizing financing for rail and, and road infrastructure and things like that that are presently major features of the Belt
1: and Road? Yeah, so I read those four areas as being um, uh, thematic and uh, can relate to hard infrastructure projects. So, you know, the focus on climate, the way that I read that is that, um, you know, it it could include delivering, um, you know, traditional transport projects, but doing so with greater attention to um, climate uh, change and building, you know, resiliency into those projects. Um, so you know they're more um, you know resistant to adverse um, you know weather events. Um, that the actual construction of those projects is not um, having you know adverse environmental consequences. So I think it, it it really is there. Yeah, I definitely see it in the digital technology part too. Um, so I think that's that's part of it. Um, and those those themes I think will include both the sort of traditional roads. Um, ports and so on projects that we think about when we think about infrastructure but you also see in that in that definition I think a somewhat broader um, framing for what for what infrastructure is particularly around health too mm. um, and I think that's in line with what the world' needs right now um, in the aftermath of the pandemic right right
0: yeah I mean resilience uh, the importance of resilience uh, at least in the public health sector is Uh, proved to be very, very important. Um, Now, going back to the Blue Dot Network, um, the idea there is to create um, an investment-grade asset class for infrastructure projects in in the developing world. And I'm wondering, you know, where does the Blue Dot Network stand? Has it been operationalized? Have these standards been set? or, um, Or if they haven't, you know, what kind of timeline are we looking at?
1: Yeah, this is one of the real, real challenges here. So, they're still being developed. Um, the OECD is doing a lot of analytical work to help that process. Uh, and, you know, in order to you know, achieve the objective that you outlined there, you know, to make this, um, you know, to make infrastructure really a more um, investable asset class. And to have this certification really mean something to private investors, you know, to, to basically motivate them to put more money uh, on the line, you really have to have a very compelling certification process um, and doing that takes time. I mean, they're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. And so I'm definitely um, empathetic to that, um, that reality. But in the meantime, I mean, international politics doesn't stop, right? And so I do think that there needs to be a a little bit of urgency um, because, you know, I think in November or so, we'll we'll hit the two-year anniversary mark of, you know, the announcement of the Blue Dot Network. um, And, you know, there there is not a lot to point to yet in terms of, um, you know, actual projects on the ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So do you have an understanding as to whether, um, you know, we may see these, uh, this, you know, a framework, a set of standards established anytime soon in the next year or two, or this is kind of, you know, somewhat ambiguous.
1: So what I'm hoping is that, um, you know, I'm hoping that there's a way to do this where um, we sort of maybe do some pilot projects and do those pilot projects with the recognition that we haven't perfected, uh, we haven't cracked the code, we haven't perfected the system yet. Um, and to do, do it as a sort of beta test or a sort of you know, 1.0 version of the Blue Dot Network. Um, and in doing that, get better at coordinating both internally within our individual governments. I mean, that's a big challenge if you think about all the agencies that are involved on the US side alone, and then you know coordination among the three partners. Um, you know, it's encouraging. I think there is real interest to bring on more partners, particularly from Europe now, given this, um, you know, giving greater attention to to climate issues. Um, But the, you know, the the development process is not going to be finished, um, you know, tomorrow. Um, And the world needs infrastructure in the meantime. So I'm hoping that there's a way to do this. So it's sort of iterative um, and, you know, recognizing that there's going to be a little bit of trial and error
0: Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, we, the OECD countries already coordinate on, um, you know, developing standards and things like that for, um, you know, formal aid. And I guess, you know, this is sort of a parallel to that in terms of, you know, having a a private capital emphasis. um, And this is more about financing as opposed to an investment, as opposed to, uh, you know, things that are expressly within the aid category. Now, um, you know, The idea here, I guess, is to look for bankable projects uh, that, um, you know, in which the political and security risks are are managed somehow. And I think that would really exclude a lot of the projects that have come under the BRI portfolio. Um, And it might also rule out many of the countries that are currently receiving BRI-related funding. So, you know, some might say that as the B3W rolls out, um its scope is ultimately going to be something that's quite narrow and in the end it may focus on on countries that you know have the least amount of political and security risk so you know middle income countries and upper middle income countries in Asia in Southeast Asia would you agree with this this idea this forecast
1: yeah I think that's you know that's where it will be comparatively easier to get Private sector investment to go, just because you know the some of the some of those places, the business environment will be better. Um, so it won't require maybe quite as as large incentives, um, you know, public support to to do that. But I do think that there's a genuine desire here. Um, I know that this is uh, you know part of um, you know, the intention behind B3W to to really do more in the developing world world more broadly. Um, so I think that, that, that is the objective, you know, th- there's, there's one project that can sort of be pointed to so far through the blue dot network. Um, and it's actually, it's, a it's not done yet, but it's a, um, a subsea cable extension that goes to Palau. Right. And so I think that's another indication that this is going to be hopefully something that, um, is, is intended to work with, um, you know, not just those middle income countries, but a a broader range of economies.
0: Right, right. So there has been, so the idea of, you know, private sector investment in infrastructure development in in the developing world isn't new. You know, the World Bank, their multilateral entities have, you know, public-private partnerships. And according to the World Bank, from 2015 to 2019, uh, private sector investors in the G7 put over, 20 billion dollars in uh toward infrastructure projects in, in the developing world but you know looking at the b3w what would it take to really expand this coverage um, you know to amounts that uh, may parallel uh, may you know resemble those that we see from china you know how can uh private banks really be expected to to take on these these risky projects and you know what are the types of policy and financing tools that can be leveraged to mitigate the risks in these markets and then you know, for example, make pension funds and other investment funds more likely to take a gamble on this?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I think when we're thinking about sort of comparing this to what China is doing or has been doing, you know it's sort of Begs the question of what period in time we want to look at for for what China's doing, because there has been a a pullback in Belt and Road related activity. Um, To the point of, I think, G7 countries and just official development assistance put more toward um, infrastructure um, in developing countries than China's, um, than China Development Bank and China Exim did in dealing with those foreign governments. And so, you know, you could you could make the case that already that you know, individually, collectively, the G seven has did more in twenty nineteen than you know those two leading Chinese lenders um, did. Obviously, with very different terms too. You know, official development assistance being different, having much different terms than some of um, you know China's more commercial oriented um, lending. Um, but I think you know that that's that's not going to be enough, though, right? And we know that the the need for infrastructure um, far exceeds what any single um, country or even you know G seven through official development assistance can can provide. Um, and so I think there's a few you know a few levers. I mean, upfront, let's just acknowledge that you can't do this for free, right? It, I think there there does need to be a credible commitment. Um, from, you know, the governments that care about this. It's going to take public money to prepare projects, um, to prepare bankable projects. Um, Sometimes it costs about, sometimes about 10% of the total cost of a project um, is the, is spent, you know, in the, in the preparation of that project. Um, and, And it's not like there's a sort of, a magic bucket that exists somewhere of these projects and they're ready to go. I mean, this, you need to spend the money to build that pipeline of projects. Um, I do think it's encouraging though, that, you know, on the one hand, all of these um, qualifiers and ambitions that are being put on um, this desire to provide higher quality infrastructure, you know, wanting to make sure that it adheres to really high environmental and social standards um, that it's, you know, uh, sustainable and uh, financially as well. Um, you know, wanting to do all of that, it can make, it can make it even more difficult to find projects and to, to get them done in a reasonable amount of time. But it does also make some of those projects potentially more attractive to private sector investors that now have maybe mandates, um, some of them or at least have expressed a desire to, um, invest more with ESG goals in mind. Um, so that, that's why, you know, this, this blue dot certification becomes intriguing because if you're doing, um, you know, an investors work for them and saying, you know, by actually investing in this asset, you're also helping to meet your ESG, um, uh, goals, then, you know, that that's a, that's a potentially, you know, attractive, um, sweetener there. Um, that's not going to do it all by itself, but it's, um, that's maybe one encouraging dimension here,
0: right? Right, and as you'd said, um, you know, the BRI has gone through several phases. So, you know, the BRI 1.0 was, you know, relatively chaotic, and um, you know, um, I think there was, you know, funding of projects that really had, um, you know, limited scope in terms of, um, you know, being profitable and all that. So, you know, we've seen some adaptation on uh, the end of Beijing and, you know, in 2019, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, you know, uh, began to, you know, the Chinese leadership had began to reframe uh, the BRI and using these terms like high quality and the green BRI. So, um, you know, there's there's some adaptability we're seeing at least rhetorically on the end of, of Beijing and and perhaps, you know, these projects are now competing with, you know, the BRI 2.0 or 3.0 as opposed to, you know, the chaotic uh, 1.0. And, you know, there seems like there are lessons learned um, collectively to some degree You know a lot of countries or even ba- China itself may be having buyer's remorse about some of these, um, you know, white elephant projects that are being constructed or have been proposed in, in various uh, recipient countries where you know there are they're undergoing fiscal um as well as you know political challenges so um let's talk about um the bri and where it stands today you know um according to the boston university we've seen lending commitments from chinese policy banks declines Uh, there's a steep decline so uh, according to the study um, it's dropped from $75 billion, an estimated $75 billion in 2016, to $3.9 billion in, in 2019. Uh, you know, that doesn't include data on commercial lending from, from Beijing or from Chinese banks. Um, and, um, you know, the data set itself may be incomplete. Um, but I'm just wondering, where do you, what, what's your assessment of, you know, Beijing's risk appetite in terms of overseas financing, and, um, and and how fluid is this situation? Because if you look anecdotally, you know, we see some there have been a host of major uh, setbacks to the BRI um, and you know resistance from countries that feel that the terms are exploitative and all that. Um, and Beijing has had difficulty managing um, political challenges within very diverse and, and politically contested environments. But then at the same time, You know, we see even in countries that have had uh, challenges with some of these BRI projects or have previously resisted uh, financing from Beijing are now returning to it. So, you know, if you look at the Bagamoyo port in Tanzania or Kenya, you know, uh, sought funding for the extension of the standard gauge railway and instead uh, is now, you know, Beijing refused that and, and is now Looking, uh, as you know, we'll finance an extension of the the meter gauge railway, a less costly project. So, you know, we're seeing some adaptations in terms of Beijing and, and also in terms of recipient countries. So, I'm wondering how how do you piece that all together? Where does the, the BRI stand today? Yeah, I think
1: I think you're you're exactly right. There's learning going on on both sides, and you know, I think we can, based on you know. The various data sources I've seen, I mean, everything indicates that there was a pretty significant pullback um, in, in Belt and Road-related activity. I mean, we can kind of debate, um, you know, the, the magnitude of that pullback, but I think the trend is, is pretty clear and striking. And then so there are, you know, explanations both on, on the Chinese side and on the recipient side, I think, for why that um, trend, you know, why that pullback is occurring. Um, you know, I tend to think that the, the factors on the Chinese side are probably on balance more important just because, you know, the, the demand for infrastructure has not gone anywhere. You know, it's, the vast demand is still there. Um, but I think this does reflect a learning experience um, and sort of uh, beginning to grapple with a lot of the chaos that was um, sown during, you know, the Belt and Road boom years of 2016, 2017, um, you know, when those are sort of the peak years of peak activity um, you know, and having rolled this thing out with without a real strict criteria for what qualifies, um, which has its advantages. I mean, this thing still remains very adaptable, um, but it also, I think, created kind of a management nightmare um, because it's tough to um, manage what you can't measure. Um, and, and so, you know, there's China's had a decline in foreign exchange reserves. I think that's, you know, an a important reality that's contributed to the pullback. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe equally important is this learning that um, I think some of the institutions that have been doing the lending, China Development Bank, China XM, have been grappling with um, as projects have encountered difficulties. I mean, it sounds... It it sounds really simplistic, but um, I think some of these um, projects were launched with a set of sort of domestic experiences in mind and not a full uh, appreciation for the the foreign risks and challenges that come with doing big projects overseas. Um, I think some of the recipient countries have become a little bit more cautious, both in, in negotiating the terms of individual projects um, and, and as well as in their ability to just take on more debt. I mean, it's tough right now for a lot of developing countries. They just don't have the fiscal space to continue to do really large projects. Um, many of them are seeking debt relief um, and, you know, spending probably more time renegotiating deals than negotiating new deals. Um, but as you point out, there's a, there's a resilience to this uh, set of activities, even in places where, um, missteps have happened. And I think that speaks to the continuing need and demand for infrastructure and for foreign investment. Um, and so even if we're looking at a smaller pipeline of projects going forward, I do think, um, you know, where, where we will be looking at new projects in the future, um, as long as China has the will and the wallet, um, this will continue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, there's also, as you noted, there were, you know, there was, uh... remarkably different uh, fiscal landscape in many of these recipient countries. And then many of them also have now faced oversupply uh, if they've, you know, gone on a sort of energy um, ramping up their energy production or electric power production. Um, And so, you know, there's this issue with planning and all that. And so, you know, we're seeing also in Central Asia, as well as Pakistan, that, you know, many of these countries are trying to transition toward, um, you know, increasing their output and 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 uh, developing industrial zones, uh, using in, through these partnerships with uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises as developers. So there's that aspiration of you know moving beyond um, enhancing or increasing their their capacity, but also leveraging these this newfound um, capacity and all that. Now, it's in terms of competing with the BRI. You know, the BRI is just so amorphous. And so I'm wondering, you know, um, you know, that gives Beijing this le- adaptability, you know, um, the BRI began as these, you know, as a, um, as a land-based route and a maritime route. And now it's extending, you know, to the, to the Arctic and into space and under the sea, above the sea, everywhere, you know, it's this kind of, you know, just, you um, you know 360 type thing and so this branding has just been lumped onto um so many different aspects of of infrastructure and all of that and so i'm just wondering um does that complicate you know the g7's ability to to compete because you know even when you look at uh you know the b3w it just you know it just sounds like it's very awkward in terms of um, this this naming and it's really it seems like it's an extension of the Biden administration's domestic infrastructure plan, um, you know the Build Back Better uh, initiative. So I'm just wondering um, how because the BRI is so adaptable and amorphous, I'm just wondering in terms of public perception, is it difficult? Uh, is it is this you know uh, landscape just so difficult for the G seven and the U.S. in particular to compete with, or should we, you know, or, or is public perception not really that important? And and the real focus should be on outputs, on the, this infrastructure that will actually be developed, and what is being made of it.
1: Yeah. So I think when we look at the four areas that B three W intends to focus on: climate, health, um, digital technology, and gender equity. I think those are comparative advantages. Um, For the US and its partners. Um, And so, you know, I think, I think focusing on those areas makes sense. Um, You know, the we've seen um, in some recipient countries pretty strong pushback um, against BRI projects given adverse environmental consequences. Um, And I think, you know, being a leader in that set of issues makes sense. Um, You know, the health part, I mean, you know, the from the sort of vaccine production right now um, to other health-related capabilities. I think that is, you know, another advantage that the US has um, and the performance of, of the vaccines that the US is producing. And, you know, the the Chinese talk about, you know, a health silk road, but there hasn't, you know, before the pandemic, it's not like there was a really coherent, consistent health infrastructure dimension of the Belt and Road. I think that's just a theme that has been. Um, you know, played up in the aftermath of the pandemic. Um, and so I think the U.S. has a lot to contribute meaningfully on the health front. The digital technology part is, you know, I think um, everyone knows that the, the, you know, China has providers of 5G, um, but the technology, digital technology um, competition, I think, is much broader than that. And, you know, the U.S. has really competitive providers of, um, you know, cloud services, um, of subsea cables, of satellite communications, um, of, you know, various types of um, software and applications. And so I think that that's another, another area of advantage. Um, and the Belt and Road, you know, for all of the things that it does cover and touch and claim to advance, it doesn't have a gender dimension. I think it's pretty striking, actually, when you look at these really expansive documents um, in the sort of early days of the Belt and Road, there is no gender um, uh, dimension to it, and so I think that's important and you know another comparative comparative advantage. Mm-hmm.
0: And let's get back to that. And going back to that, um, the the digital Silk Road um, and this digital competition, um, and that's going to be the focus of your your, your next book, which will be released uh, sometime this fall, right?
1: Yeah, coming out in October.
0: Okay, great. And so where does the digital Silk Road stand? Uh, you know, we've seen Huawei face some real setbacks in Europe and North America, but it remains a big player in Asia and Africa. So I'm you know, looking uh, at the big picture, um, you know, where do things stand and, and, and
1: what are the stakes at hand? Yeah, so the, I think the digital Silk Road is, is now a much more prominent um, dimension of the Belt and Road. I think digital infrastructure has been there all along, often incorporated into things that we don't think about as being digital. Um, you know, so a, a good example is um, the port of Piraeus in Greece. And you know, if you go and you visit, um, you'll be mainly sort of drawn to, um, you know, the cranes that are offloading um, containers off of cargo ships. Um, but there is also, you know, a whole digital network that has been built there by Huawei. Um, you know, and in fact, if you if you take a cruise um, that stops at the port of Piraeus, which does has a has a um, cruise ferry, uh, cruise ship terminal, um, you can get free Wi-Fi provided by Huawei. Um, and so it's not it's not as visible, but it's been there all along. You know, other examples are laying fiber optic cable um, you know, when you're building a road or a rail project. Um, but this has now become a much more, I think, a higher uh, priority. Um, on the Chinese side, it's emphasized more in, in statements about the Belt and Road. Um, and if you think about it, it's, it's in some ways better suited to this um, post-pandemic environment um, that we find ourselves in where, um, you know, you've you, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of countries don't have the fiscal space to borrow to do you know, large transport and energy projects, which really characterize the first phase of the Belt and Road. Um, so doing these digital projects, it's not like they're cheap, but um, they can be a little bit more um, financially feasible. They require fewer workers on the ground often to deliver. Um, and so there's advantages I think on the Chinese side to that, they're less you know disruptive often to the physical environment that they're happening in. And a lot of these uh, a lot of the Chinese companies that are involved in these projects, whether it's data centers, wireless networks or, smart city systems, um, they've been squeezed out of some Western markets. And so to continue to grow, um, the Belt and Road becomes uh, a much more, um, not just convenient avenue, but one of necessity for them. Um, So I think this is something that is is going to be a really important dimension of China's foreign economic activities for the foreseeable future. And what's really clear is that um, the developing world is not going to be persuaded by arguments about security. You know, we're not going to persuade um, lower income countries in the same way that we persuaded uh, rich democracies in Europe. I mean, they just don't um, put the same emphasis on um, security, you know, the security of their digital systems as they do affordability. And so this is an area where, you know, even despite in some cases offering um, inferior products, it, we see. Chinese uh, providers, you know, moving ahead um, and positioning themselves, and I think that's that's something that the U.S. and its partners need to think more about, because um, in many respects, these are the markets of the future. You know, it's where population growth is going to happen, um, and so there are really significant long-term consequences um, if we're not competing in those markets.
0: Right, and and one of those markets is Ethiopia, and. Um... And you know, recent sometime earlier this year, um, a Chinese-backed consortium lost a uh, a bid for five G license to a U.S.-backed consortium. Uh, Ethiopia has traditionally been quite close to to China, so I'm wondering, you know, um, does this reflect uh, the the Chinese uh, Chinese uh, companies tend to be able to compete on cost and and speed? So I'm wondering, uh, do you have an uh, an understanding of you know what was behind this decision, and, and does it reflect uh, a kind of a U.S. victory in this contestation with China over shaping the future architecture of the, of the digital superhighway? Um, and what are the lessons learned from this?
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of a lot of countries are keeping their options open. I think that they don't want to be all in on any single provider, and so I think, you know, that that makes um, political sense. In some cases, it makes um, strategic sense too, you might you might pay a little bit extra to have you know different different providers, and it might introduce some complexity into your systems. But I think you know that's the that's the place that a lot of um, countries want to be. They want to um, you know benefit from a competition between outside providers and sort of maximize their options, get the best offer, best terms, and so on. Um, and so I think it's encouraging that you know the U.S. is um, Becoming more active in Africa, Ethiopia in particular, you know it's an important market. Um, you know, there's also, I think, there was an announcement too, some significant funding from um, the U.S. Development Finance Corporation toward data centers in Africa. That's another really important area for growth. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, really take too much of a victory lap for any single project um, or any single transaction. You know, there this is not it's not a static situation and you know it's one where you kind of you have to show up and continue to compete. Um and, and so you know, I think it's it's a it's positive, it's encouraging, um, but you know, the competition continues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long
1: game. Uh then final question looking
0: at um not necessarily that you know long-term. Uh, le- looking at things with a long-term lens, but maybe in the shorter, short to medium term, in the next five to ten years, you know, assuming that uh, the B3W and the Blue Dot network gain momentum, what would you say is a uh, you know kind of like a best case scenario um, in terms of uh, the ability of the G7, the U.S. and the G7 to to compete with the BRI? Um, what would you say, or would be some achievements that would that one could say that uh, you know these initiatives have achieved strategic goals uh, for uh, the U.S. and the G7?
1: Well, I think the the reception and participation of two audiences is really important, and I think would will be you know an important um, indicator of how this is all going. You know. The first is the private sector and whether they're actually increasing the amount of money they're putting into, um, these projects. Um, and it wouldn't take dramatic, um, increases in terms of percentages of, of assets under management to make a meaningful difference. And I know that there are institutional investors that are, that are interested in doing more of this. We had, um, uh, an event last week with, um, Marcy Frost, who's the CEO of Calpers, which is the largest pension fund uh, in the U.S. and I think maybe a top ten in the world, um, and they're looking at you know ways to get more active in foreign infrastructure uh, because those assets can provide reliable long-term returns. Um, and they're trying to they you know they're charged with I think um, you know promising a 6.5 or 6.8 percent annual return on their investments Um, and, you know, infrastructure can line up nicely with the timelines that they're thinking about. Um, They're, you know, not doing a lot in the really risky markets, but they could be more active if, if um, the blue dot network and B3W really works in in a meaningful way. Um, the, The second audience that I think is critical here are, you know, decision makers, leaders in the developing world what do they think about this stuff are they going to um, are they going to pass on an offer um, from the Chinese that you know is potentially going to result in a project being delivered faster um, with less transparency and public scrutiny um, and you know, potentially a lower upfront cost, even if it ends up costing more over its life cycle, sort of lower upfront cost. Are they going to pass on that offer um, and take something that might take a little bit longer, um, but is going to come with these, these higher standards? You know, that, that's, the, that's the calculus that ultimately needs to shift. Um, and you know, they need to see the value in this. And I hope that as a track record of success is established here, um, you know, that this brand becomes synonymous with, you know, not only these higher standards, but reliability and sort of knowing that if you go this route, it does pay off. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that is the longer, the longer game that we're trying to play.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a definitely, a, you know, a long-term play. And um, I think that, you know, the results um you know, maybe we'll see in our, our lifetime. Uh, but, uh, well, thank you, John. Thank you for uh, taking your time to, to, to discuss all this with us. And I, I think our listeners will be really enriched by the discussion. And I look forward to reading your book when it comes out later this year.
1: Thanks so much. And so, yeah, the, the book is called The Digital Silk Road, China's Quest to Wire the World and Win the Future. It will be out in mid-October. Um, and I'll, I'll make sure I get you a copy of that. Um, and thanks for having me.
0: So that wraps up our discussion with Jonathan Hillman of CSIS. I think Jonathan did a great job describing how the B3W is part of the evolution of the U.S. response to a BRI that itself is evolving. So. We're seeing the US go from merely complaining about the BRI's supposed flaws to what Jonathan has termed as a more promising strategic phase in which the US is beginning to help expand the availability of higher quality infrastructure financing for developing countries. So we see this through the DFC, the US Exim Bank, and the Blue Dot Network. But, you know, progress on all fronts has been slow. The Blue Dot Network itself remains an idea. It lacks an implementable framework. And Chinese companies, as Jonathan notes, continue to remain major players in the developing world, where concerns about affordability give Chinese companies a distinct advantage. Now, even as Chinese financing of overseas infrastructure projects has declined since peaking in the early years, of the Belt and Road, we still see Chinese EPC contractors dominate the landscape in places like Africa, including in projects that are locally financed and those that are financed by multilaterals like the World Bank. Uh, so the big picture is this. Despite the pandemic-induced austerity measures that we see in parts of the developing world, there remains a huge deficit in financing for infrastructure in low- and middle-income countries, and China continues to meet that demand. But we're not quite there in terms of truly expanding the infrastructure financing options for developing countries. But down the road, if we do get there, The winners are going to be those countries that can truly leverage great power competition to their benefit and get high quality infrastructure at financing terms that are to their advantage. But to be able to do that, they have to develop the indigenous capacity and the will to think in their own national interests.